Well, thank you, uh, Anna. I think maybe we worked the rota that uh, Anna would be leading this evening so that Gwen and I could just have a gentle reintroduction to understanding the accent for the next uh, few years. So thank you very much uh, for that, Anna. As I said this morning, um, it's very difficult to know what to, to speak on when it's maybe your, your last time in a place that has meant a lot to you, uh, that last time certainly for, for a while. Uh, and therefore, this morning, I, I hope I shared my heart a little bit of what it would mean, what my prayers would be for this church to grow in God's grace. Uh, and so this evening, I, I've decided I would like to do something just a little bit different. Uh, and rather than just take a, a passage of scripture, which uh, would be my, my normal uh, style, uh, to outline instead some key principles that I feel a church like Kirkpatrick, uh, in your context and at this time, uh, would find particularly pertinent uh, and vital to ongoing spiritual health. So I don't think, uh, I hope anyway, that no one finds this a little bit presumptuous or impertinent, uh, but if I, I need to, to justify it any further, part of the brief that Christoph in the session gave me when I came on board a few months ago was to observe uh, in a generously critical way various aspects of Kirkpatrick's life and witness, and then drawing on some wider experience of Presbyterian churches particularly around Ireland to make some comments that might be relevant to your future development. So I guess this is maybe part of that process. I've decided to call it 10 questions a church like Kirkpatrick should ask. So let me say at the start that all of what I'm about to say is, is said humbly with the recognition of two fundamental things. First of all, I recognise that an awful lot of good and godly work has taken place over the years here and continues to take place. Nothing I say here is to be interpreted as denigrating or undervaluing any of that work. Secondly, I recognise that the most important principles for Kirkpatrick 2008, indeed any church, is that they remain within God's will, that they trust in him and him alone for the fruit and for the growth, that it's not about methods or strategies, it's not about uh, ideas or uh, events or different emphases. All that I said this morning from First Thessalonians or from Second Thessalonians chapter one is to be taken as read. The most important thing in all of this is that your faith and your love continue to grow and that you experience God's grace, which is sufficient for all eventualities, and that you experience his peace which passes all human understanding. Grace and peace be with you. So that said then, what are some of the other questions? Well, the first one I've highlighted is this. Are we keeping the main thing the main thing? There are an inordinate number of ways to get distracted in church life. And very, very rarely will any church be distracted or go off track by doing things that are obviously and totally wrong or unbiblical. 
far more likely we can get distracted by things which are legitimate or even good, but which sap time and money and energy from our main task. And that main task, I believe, is threefold. Glorifying God, bearing witness to Jesus Christ in an unbelieving world, and developing a community of maturing, growing disciples of Jesus. Disciples whose love and obedience and preparedness to suffer and die for their master knows no bounds. With that in mind, any church which fails to ensure that its preaching ministry is relevant and challenging, that its evangelism is creative and orthodox, and that its corporate life is both God-honoring and community-building, any church who avoids that will inevitably miss the point and fail to produce real and lasting spiritual fruit. I have to say that I think Kirkpatrick has done remarkably well in this area, but it's worth being reminded of again and again to keep the main thing the main thing. Remember that we are here because we are called to be a branch of the church of Jesus Christ, to glorify him, bear witness to Jesus, and develop a community of maturing disciples. Secondly, have we learned from our history? Not unlike some governments, uh, too many churches repeat the mistakes of the past. Now at Kirkpatrick we are blessed still with a reasonably sizable older membership. It's important to look critically at the century or so of witness in this area and ask questions such as, what typified this church when it was flourishing? What were the elements in the past which led to the spiritual prosperity of this congregation? And equally, what typified it when it wasn't doing so well? Had something, perhaps, some of those main things mentioned above been forgotten? Ask and learn. Think of what inspired those who set up this church. Or what contributed to it being a beacon of light in Ballyhackamore, especially in some of those economically and socially difficult days in the middle of last century? Think of the things that have led this congregation to grow, to its numerical and spiritual resurgence in recent days. And you may find that there are some common factors. Hold on to those principles, not necessarily the practices, because they change and every age is different and requires a different approach, but hold on to those principles that have borne fruit over the years. Thirdly, are we prepared to cope with growing pains. In any family, and I've never used this analogy before in Kirkpatrick, but forgive me because I think it's worth repeating. In any family, when there is a new arrival, the dynamics of that family change forever. The relationship between the parents, the relationship between the parents and any other siblings, older siblings, are irrevocably changed. Family life is now different. Yet whenever a spiritual baby is born into our church family, or maybe whenever we adopt children from other church families who come to live in this area, it seems that more often than not we expect the baby or the newly adopted to conform to our family rather than the other way around. We would never think of saying to a newborn baby, uh, breakfast is at 7.30, lunch at 12 o'clock, dinner at 6, you can watch one hour of TV at night, two on Fridays, and you must be asleep in your room from 9 o'clock in the evening to 7 o'clock in the morning. Although I think some of you wish that we probably could say that to newborns. And then we say to the rest of them, meanwhile, the schedule is exactly the same as it was last week. Nothing has changed. 
We would never think of doing that. And yet rather than looking for ways in which new spiritual babes can be nurtured and mature within the family and accommodated within it, often we say, this is what we do, adapt or leave. And that's inexcusable. The problem, you see, is that if we adapt, not what we are, but if we adapt how we do things and even what we do, then life can get messy and we suffer inevitable growing pains. It wasn't like this years ago. You know, it's nice to see new faces around, but sometimes I think I actually preferred it back then when everybody knew everyone, when they knew what the rules were, what you did and didn't do, where you did and didn't go or sit. And things were so much simpler and easier. Well, sorry, but that is not an option for a living and a vibrant church. Those rules have to go. And if you're fulfilling your mandate as a community of Christ, you will experience growing pains. Expect them and rejoice in them. There are enough complainers in society. There are enough grumps There are enough of what that lovely Norn Iron phrase calls nyerps. It's a wonderfully descriptive word. There are enough nyerps in society generally without having any more in the church. We can't have it both ways. We can't grow and stay the same. We can't have both a steady stream of new people and yet an unremitting commitment to unalterably old ways of doing things. It's just not possible. Fourthly, are we truly intergenerational? It's particularly impossible if you're to take on board the fourth principle, which is to be truly intergenerational. It's impossible just to stick with the older ways. The church is probably one of the last places in existence where three or four generations can be in the same place at the same time doing the same thing. And we lose this at our peril. The church is countercultural in many, many ways. Because the gospel is countercultural. Now, I'll say more about that in the next section, but nowhere is it to be more countercultural than in its refusal to bow to the alleged inevitability of the generation gap. Our culture divides us into generations. In fact, it subdivides the youth generation into about four or five sub-generations. And the perceived wisdom in some circles is that we have to respond to this by having separate church experiences for each of those generations or even sub-generations. Now this has been about, I guess, in some parts of the States particularly for a while. But also over here, I know of places in Ireland who are going down the road of providing a totally separate church Not just for children, but for junior high school, senior high school, and even students. I don't claim to be a prophet, but I'm willing to predict that they will reap a harvest they don't want. In terms both of any long-term chance of integrating the next generation into the wider church community, but more seriously, they will reap a harvest in terms of the spiritual development of those young people themselves who will remain forever stunted because they have been kept within their peer group. If their only experience of church has been with their peers, what will be there to motivate them into, as what one American church called it, big church? And that particular church admitted to me 
the attrition rate of students growing out of all the age-specific programs, the attrition rate of them then opting out of church altogether was enormous. In contrast, I think of young people that I have known on mission teams, on overseas teams, development teams, schisms. Very often the ones who are spiritually mature beyond their years are those who have had to make it on their own, who haven't been pandered to by churches, who feel the bottom line is to keep them happy and keep them coming, but who have got on with being a Christian in small, sometimes quite boring churches, and then who, when given the chance to serve in a larger or wider context, have just shone. It's often evident from my experience in other churches that the main agitators for such a generationalist policy are very often worried or anxious parents whose horizons are no further than simply keeping their young people at church. But the vision needs to be broader than that. The vision needs to be for the spiritual maturing of the children. And there is no point in keeping them at church if the reality is not there. It's just counterproductive. The church should not be the main provider of spiritual instruction for young people. The home is the major provider. The church is an extension of what they learn and see modelled at home. And church is different from school. Church is different from hanging out with mates. Church is different from the rest of life. Church, by definition, is intergenerational. In fact, it's so different, it could almost be cool. Now, the corollary of this is that church has to be the sort of place where children and teens and students feel welcome. I've seen a model of this, admittedly again, from the United States in a Presbyterian context this time. At worship, all the time, are all children over seven or eight years old. At the door, some of the 70, 11-year-olds may be given some worksheets that they can look at during the sermon, but which will involve a listening at least to part of what's going on in the sermon. It's not a traditional family service in that there's no expectation that the children or the younger teens will necessarily understand everything that's going on or being said. But the churches of the ethos where it says that the most important thing is that they're there experiencing what's going on, experiencing the worship, having it built into their spiritual DNA that this is part of who we are as a family. This is church. This is, this is what we do. You're welcome. You can play a part in this. You can help be with us and change us and grow with us, but we need you here. Now, again, at Kirkpatrick, I think we do this pretty well, comparatively speaking. I guess we're at a place where maybe the, the first generation of teenagers for many years is just emerging. So some of this isn't an issue yet, but I imagine it might be soon. Don't lose your intergenerationality. I'm going to miss uh, so many folks here. But I hope you'll forgive me if, as an illustration of what I'm saying here, I single out just a couple to illustrate the point uh, as I move on. There's Robin, Robin Furman here tonight. Now, I'm sure Robin would understand I don't mean to be unkind if I say that Robin isn't in the first flush of youth. But I've been so encouraged by Robin over my years here. I know that he and Betty pray for me. 
He always encourages me, and not just me, but anybody who has the time to spend with him. I just hope that I, when I'm Robin's age, I'm as enthusiastic and as full of spiritual energy as he is. I wouldn't want to see a church developing where young people didn't have the chance to interact with Robin or he with them. And then at the other end of the scale, there's Zara, and I don't think she's made it out tonight. But Zara's very special because she's the only girl I've been able to flirt with in church with Gwen's permission. But just to be here often at an evening service, except they've just come back from holiday and I think are still jet-lagged, to see Zara there alongside Carlos and Alexander is just wonderfully affirming of the family feel of this place. It says something about who we are. Fifthly, what are the 21st century idols that we need to identify and tackle? For a church like Kirkpatrick to prosper in these days, I believe it will be essential to tackle head-on idols of the 21st century Belfast life. Now, I'm not saying that some of the older idols, such as sectarianism or racism, have disappeared by no means. But they are a little bit more obvious now and exposed. And they can at least be acknowledged as such whenever they do surface. I'm thinking more about some of the idols that have almost subconsciously crept into the throne room of our lives and stealthily crawled up onto the throne to take control of our values and our thinking without our realising it. In preparation for my new context of ministry, I've been reading a book by David McWilliams called The Pope's Children. It is a biting and sometimes caustic overview of modern Ireland and the emerging generation of 20 and 30-somethings. Now, while it's clearly referring to the peculiar social and economic changes in the Republic, I think much of it applies certainly to professional upper-middle-class Belfast as well. Listen to what McWilliam says. He says, In the old Irish dream, things were offered up and sacrificed in this life for fulfilment in the next life. This had to be replaced by a new Irish dream. The new Irish dream can best be summed up by, I want to trade up. I want the biggest fridge, the best holiday, the newest car, the loudest sound system, the healthiest food, the best yoga posture, the most talked about wedding. I want it all and I want it now. I want to measure, compare and outperform. I want to be recognised, appreciated and loved. I want to be number one and no one is going to stop me. He goes on to say, Celebrity, fame and one-upmanship have become ubiquitous. We find ourselves in a world where no SUV is big enough, no model new enough. It's a world where the brain of a seven-year-old has taken over the heads of the adult population. Pestering, demanding, throwing away. We're all brimming with unfulfilled expectations. There's no personal dream too deluded and no individual too ordinary to be brilliant. This is the self-help nation. No expectation is too high, too ambitious or too far-sighted. No child is too young for highlights, no bum too fat for hipsters and no singer too tone deaf to be on pop idol. As you read more and more of this, at one level you could become depressed. 
On the other level, it is so self-evidently empty. You can't help but see how the gospel can knock down those idols with the lightest touch of God's finger of grace. McWilliams does a very good job of stripping back the pretentiousness of so much of modern Irish yuppie values. And the church should be doing exactly the same thing because we can go further than McWilliams. We can offer something more substantial to fill the void that sooner or later is going to loom in all of its horrific emptiness in front of those who have chased the new Irish dream and instead of fulfilment, they find themselves mortgaged to the hilt, in danger of losing their marriages, addicted to work, antidepressants, or something else. And the church needs to constantly confront even its own members about the subtleness of these idols. Sometimes I've been tempted to ask Christian parents, If you had to choose between your child getting into their preferred grammar school, going to university, settling into a secure legal or medical career, but not having any Christian faith, and they're plodding their way through secondary school, leaving at 16, taking up some minimum wage apprenticeship, but being utterly content and clear in their Christian faith, what would you choose? If you had to choose between your child getting three A's at A-level and jacking in the whole Christian thing, or failing their A-levels but continuing to teach Sunday school and witness to their friends at their new job, what would you choose? If you had to choose between your daughter being a size 14 and a happy Christian, or a size 10 and not interested, what would it be? If you had to choose between her marrying a non-Christian doctor whose family had a happy end in the south of Spain, or a young non-university educated labourer who was a keen Christian, what would you choose? Because sadly I fear the answers I would get if they were being honest would not be the ones we'd want to hear. We need to continually and relentlessly expose and oppose the idols that tower over so many of our materialistic and class values and ask time and time again what really matters. In the light of eternity, what really matters? Sixthly, are we making maximum use of Sundays? I do recognise that the realities of modern life are such that time is at a premium and many families are under inordinate pressure to do everything they would like to do. So how fair is it for a church to make demands on those extremely busy schedules which isn't just to do with work life but quality time together as a family and here I think we have to admit that the world has changed 30 years ago people went to work, came home and the evenings and weekends were largely free volunteerism therefore flourished but working patterns and the flourishing of other extracurricular (coughs) activities for our children has meant that disposable time is at a premium. It therefore may not be fair for the church to expect three or four nights a week to be taken up with church activities. For the start, it might lead to even more pressure on already pressured families. It also takes church members away from their neighbourhoods, from the sports clubs, from the other non-church activities where they should be salt and light, and hence they increase isolation. Perhaps we could look at doing what some other churches have done 
and that is to make maximum use of Sundays. This might mean eating together, for example, as some activities or groups take place over a lunchtime or tea time. It could mean looking afresh at the purpose of Sunday evenings. Could discipleship groups or Christianity Explored courses run at that time? Sunday evening services actually historically began in England initially so that servants who were on duty in the morning could come to worship in the evening. Later, in the century before last, they were primarily used as outreach services for the lapsed or unchurched who perhaps had been out in the tear on Saturday night and felt guilty that they hadn't been at church on Sunday morning. And so something different was put on for them on the Sunday. The idea of a second service more or less imitating what went on in the morning is a relatively recent phenomenon peculiar to Western churches in the last couple of generations and has probably never been questioned. It possibly arose in an altogether more Sabbatarian culture where it helped to fill the day when there wasn't much else to do. If we start from first principles of how best can we achieve our primary purpose of getting to know God better, of reaching the unbeliever, of developing Christian community, if we start from those first principles about how best we can do that, then we might come up with a few alternatives for what we do on a Sunday. It might also mean timing Sundays differently so that there is time after worship for further, more formal discussion or teaching. Churches that have a successful intergenerational approach to church often supplement this by having age-specific things after church so that parents, not just children, attend a Sunday school class or a discussion or a ministry of some sort for 45 minutes after morning worship. This is the added advantage in a biblically more illiterate age of setting more time aside than can be done in public worship for learning, theological development, understanding more of God's word. It's probably more practical in this day and age to do it then than in the older midweek slot. Number seven, have we got something worth committing to? This generation are not joiners. There's a postmodern suspicion of institutions and organizational religion, and some of this may have valid roots, but it's certainly the soil in which in increasing numbers of cases Lack of commitment and lack of responsibility and lack of accountability can flourish if we're not careful. Spiritual voyeurism and consumerism undermine the development of true Christian community to the detriment of the individual and the congregation in question. It's easy for folks to slip through the cracks, which of course suits some people fine. It eases the way for some who have dipped in for a while to one church in order to dip out again before anybody gets too close. <clears throat> it's up to the church in question to demonstrate that here in this place there is something worth joining, something worth committing to, that here is not just a place of welcome and acceptance, but also of challenge and real mutual support. Now, because of the demographics of Kirkpatrick, there will always be a floating percentage of folks whose circumstances or stage of life bring them to us for a while and who are not nor ever can be any more committed than they are. 
That's fine. That's a ministry I think we can embrace for those folks at that stage. But you cannot build a real community and found it on such. If folks are here for a while and are obviously benefiting from the fellowship and have something real to offer, the benefits and responsibilities of membership need to be outlined. There's no point in speaking in generalizations about community building and mutual commitment while the burden of service and giving is carried on by a too small group of people. We need to demonstrate that we're worth joining, that we're worth being committed to. Number eight, have we any sacred calves? <coughs> we need to recognize that after gospel essentials have been affirmed, nothing else should be sacrosanct. Now, I don't have time to go into detail about what I mean with regard to gospel essentials, but our subordinate standards as a Presbyterian church and the bases of faith, such as those used by IFES or Evangelical Alliance, are a reasonable summary that have stood the test of time. What I am stating is that if a church is to truly develop, then given those first principles, there can be no other sacred cows in terms of style or methodology or institutions or organizations. How often has creative gospel ministry been hindered because people have not been willing to sacrifice or be flexible regarding the timing or the program of an organization or the style of worship? Or to give up some event or ministry that was great in its day, but now no longer fulfills any discernible purpose. One of the dangers of a church as it grows is that it can start new traditions very easily. And traditions and organizations are much easier to start than to finish. Just this year, here at Kirkpatrick, we have begun two new uniformed organizations. That's super. It's a sign of growth. It was a decision that was entered obviously uh, into prayerfully and thoughtfully. Just be aware that all organizations constantly need to review their purpose and effectiveness. And it's sometimes harder for organizations that have been in the church for decades or organizations maybe that have some outside body to which they are accountable as well. It's harder for them sometimes to do this. So maybe the youngest organizations uh, can set the example and be prepared to review and reassess, ensuring that it sometimes happens when organizations that are affiliated to outside bodies with their own agenda and structures to ensure that the tail doesn't wag the dog. What would the church lose if we didn't have a GB or a choir or a PWA or three bowling clubs or a Christian endeavor, how sacrosanct is this building? Could you countenance changing it? If absolutely necessary, I hope the answer to those questions is we would change anything. We know the church is not the building. We know the organizations are simply tools to outreach. Now, it may be that everything that we do here is essential to achieving our mission. That's great. That's something for the leadership to decide. All I'm saying is it's healthy to ask the questions. Number nine, on what are our expectations and vision built? We're nearly there. 
As one preacher sometimes puts it, the landing gear isn't quite down, but the undercarriage is open. Are our expectations and vision for the extension of the kingdom of God, or are the expectations for something much less? What do I mean? Well, it may be that for some of you, you're very happy with the development and growth of Kirkpatrick. Your vision for the future is more of the same, with more people coming and doing the same things at the same time, and the church offering the same services as it does today. For others, maybe you're feeling disoriented because you don't know everybody the way you used to, and you feel the church shouldn't grow anymore, that we need to concentrate on developing what we have. For still others, Maybe you've come from another church where they had a certain type of ministry, maybe a men's ministry or a youth ministry or a social outreach. And your vision is that Kirkpatrick replicates what you find so helpful in another context. For still others, you're excited about church community and change and feel that all the church's resources need to be concentrated on the local community. For still others, you feel we should raise our global mission Uh, awareness and increase our partner's budget. For others, you want to concentrate on the musical development. My point is that no one can afford to put their preferences first and push them so firmly as if they are the authoritative mind of God on the subject. Ensure that our sole aim is for the glory of God in this place and the extension of his kingdom. By all means, as I said this morning, dream your dreams. But dream them together and be prepared to change them. This is not a personal empire. It is to be a community seeking together the will of God for themselves and for their neighbours. And finally, are we a community that would be sorely missed? When I was traveling the country, I used to ask the question, if this church was to close tomorrow, who would notice? In what ways would the community be worse off? Interesting question. I was struck on one occasion by someone who came up to me and said a while later, you know that time you came to our church and you asked that question, our group decided quite honestly that we couldn't answer it. We weren't sure that anything of substance would be lost or missed in our community if we were to close. But, they said, now that you've asked it, we're resolved to make sure that we're the sort of church who would be missed. Would we be missed here in Kirkpatrick? I think increasingly we would be. People out there are starting to notice They're starting to be involved and to benefit from some of our ministries. I have found it from even a few years ago when I first came here and people said, where exactly is that church? To in recent days where they've said to me, oh, that's the church with the cross outside it. Hopefully with church community and change, that being noticed and being of benefit will continue. But in terms of those of us in here, would we miss what we experience here if for whatever reason we had to leave or be absent for a while? 
When we meet together in this place, does something of a significant transformational spiritual nature occur that changes us as human beings? I was first struck by this a few years back when I was preaching through 1 Corinthians and I had to deal with that very difficult passage in chapter 5 that has to deal with excommunication. The basic premise is this. Paul states that in some situations people should be excluded from fellowship because of sin. Why? Not out of vindictiveness, not because he was a megalomaniac power freak. No, specifically in order to restore them, in order to bring about repentance. How? Because his presupposition was this, that withholding the benefits of fellowship together in worship and through the sacrament, through this very difficult and to our ears harsh judgment, that withholding that would be such a blow to the person concerned that they would do anything to be restored. It would have a renewing and a restorative effect. Gordon Fee says something like this, and I'm paraphrasing what he says. He says, the problem with that whole issue in today's church is that not only can it be done purely judicially and judgmentally with no relational or restorative aspects, but also that the fragmentation of our church since Paul's day means that church discipline, if and when it is practiced, even if it is practiced properly, usually results in the person concerned having no loyalty to the church or bond with the fellowship, and so simply going down the road to another church where they will be welcomed unquestioningly, which of course says something about our interchurch relations. However, he says, what if, what if our church fellowships were such places of love as well as discipline? What if the fellowship and the sense of community was so strong? What if the worship was so vibrant, the preaching so transformational, the generosity and hospitality of the people so overwhelming? What if the care for the stranger and the outsider was so genuine and the congregational life and witness so full of integrity? That someone who, for whatever reason, had been excluded from the fellowship for a while, rather than taking offence, would look at themselves and what they were missing and simply not be able to wait to get back and to return. And therefore we see how discipline would be truly restorative and renewing. My whole point in this is not to talk about church discipline, but to use it as an example to say that what the New Testament principle is, is that we are to be a community that people would miss. That we are to be a community that people couldn't wait to get back into and be part of. We, couldn't, we needed to be a community where the outsiders just were knocking on the doors and saying we want to be part of this. Is that the sort of church we want? My abiding prayer is not that Kirkpatrick Memorial would grow numerically, although that would be great if everything else is in place. Nor is it that we would be doing lots of things in the community and for our members, although again, if everything else is right, that would be great and it would probably happen. No, my prayer, as I said this morning, is in Paul's words of Second Thessalonians 1. 
that God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power you may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for its witness, for its leadership, for its members, for its ministries. I pray that you would lead them and guide them. I pray that you would be with them by your Holy Spirit, uh, disturbing them and renewing them and leading them into new opportunities of service stretching them beyond their comfort zones, dethroning the idols that are in all of our hearts that prevent you working as you should, and striving to be a community of your spirit that would be sorely missed if we were not here. And so, Lord, take each one of us and use us for your glory in the coming days. Amen.